0: Three CR Breakfast. Oh yeah. Alternative news, analysis, Clap and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am oh, to 8:30am. <laughs> <hands.
1: laughs>
2: Good morning, and welcome to Three CR Thursday Breakfast. Tried to confuse you there early in the morning by. Uh, you know, letting you know that it was the uh, MUA show, but unfortunately you've got Thursday breakfast um, with Dean. uh, Shirazad's still away, you know, slumming it up in uh, Gay Paris, hopefully catching up with Rashida on the show today um, at uh, around 7.15. We'll listen to Paul Henley talking to us uh, about an issue that's been going on for a while, about the conduct of Facebook into the harvesting of Facebook user data. I'm sure a lot of us are across it, and I'm sure some of us are using it uh, sparingly at the moment. At 7.30, we'll be speaking to Nick Savaitis, who's the founder and director of a company called Etico, about the environmental impact of the fashion industry, and I guess, more importantly, human rights abuses – we know that, uh, in 2013, there's a runner plaza collapse in Bangladesh, which killed more than a thousand people. Um, and the 24th is the fifth anniversary of the tragedy. And at 7.45, I've got Josie Evans, um, and there's a rally today, uh, a work for the doll rally in Sydney. Um, and I guess this is all in relation to the second anniversary of Josh Park Fing's death. Um, and it's got to do with work for the doll. And after eight, Phil Solomon will be speaking to us about Not Done Yet, um, a film he created about trans visibility. But uh, as usual, at this time of the morning, uh, 3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to elders past and present and emerging and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement, and we acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed.
3: 3CR Breakfast would like
4: to say thanks to program sponsor The New International Bookshop for the financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall at 54 Victoria Street, Carlton.
5: It's that time of year again. It's Radiothon. And
4: out of the blue, we're running our annual fundraising trivia night.
1: It's on Wednesday the 23rd of May at 6pm at Highlander Bar in the city.
4: So jump on our Facebook page, Out of the Blue, for more information and tickets. Hope to see you there.
1: Come along and have some fun.
6: Want
7: to support 3CR's diverse and independent voices? Donate now by calling 9419 8377 or donate online at www.3cr.org.au or post as a cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277 Collingwood
8: 3066.
5: Remember, NAIDOC's a special day for us, fellas. as a reminder who we are.
2: Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am. NAIDOC means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present.
5: NAIDOC means a lot to me, for my family and my people.
4: You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. and need listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcasts. Happy NAIDOC!
2: We are back on 8.55am Just on Thursday breakfast Just quickly, I know obviously we've had our uh, Stolen Wealth Games update um, Happening there from the uh, Stolen Wealth Games I know obviously more recently there's been this huge outrage about the closing ceremony um, But... More importantly, uh, you know, the furor about it was a bit, uh yeah, it was a bit crazy. I know that um, it didn't seem to go that well. People were more concerned about the fact that the athletes weren't visible. But just to give you an update, Indigenous protesters were still demonstrating at the Commonwealth Games closing ceremony. And I watched maybe a little bit of it just to get a bit of an idea about, um, you know, what type of Indigenous representation would happen At the uh, end of it. And there didn't really seem to be much. It just seemed to be a bit of tokenism. So it's good to see that, um, you know, uh, there's been reports that uh, uh, protesters were still demonstrating at the Commonwealth Games closing ceremony. And they did a really, really good job in terms of, you know, getting their message across about what the commonwealth games were all about and i guess um you know it it seemed like it um, romanticized um, the indigenous part life on the gold coast Um, there was a report by a gold coast historical society president and university of queensland anthropology museum director michael Aird, who said the events cultural celebrations had instead romanticized indigenous people's contribution to the region Um, you know and i guess it sort of says people would much rather view the romantic view of aboriginal culture of aboriginal people with didgeridoos and med lap laps and fancy body paint and dancing around with with lightning sticks more than actually you know what they know about aboriginal people what they've lived through the hard work that they're doing and i guess one of the main things which is trying to keep their families together while surviving um, his family had lived in the region for generations and he said they'd made the decision to stay there because they were surrounded by relatives in the hope of keeping their children together. Um, and he was saying that was the most important story that should have been told, um, you know, because they are there, because of the hard work um, of the previous generations, not necessarily um, because they have great stories to tell. So, yeah, some some sort of, um, you know, thoughts that were um, related to some of the issues that our um, protesters were there for, which was to, um, you know, talk about the colonisation and, I guess, the, the stolen lands and equal rights of Indigenous people Australia-wide, not necessarily um, on the Gold Coast. And that um, article, I guess you could sort of uh, look at it, it's, uh, it was on ABC and the... Uh, gentleman who wrote it is um mr ed his first name is um michael so he's um based at the university of queensland and he's an anthropologist what we might do is um go to a quick track and then um yeah we'll listen to uh, paul henley reporting on the investigation into the conduct of facebook um about harvesting our user data i'm actually not on facebook so uh my data has not been harvested for anything, but I'm sure those, uh, you know, 80 million people out there who use the service um, might be a little bit concerned. And two songs there. Uh, we had me and Dyson with Lonely and I've Been Moved by Kev Carmody. Uh, Obviously, um, you know, Facebook has uh, affected 87 million users with its uh, data breach. Uh, BBC's News Hour, Paul Henley, reported on the US investigation into the conduct of Facebook into the harvesting of Facebook user data
1: recently. So the face of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, is in front of a congressional committee at the moment. He is defending and in turn apologising for the conduct of his social media creation when it came to how it handled its many millions of users' personal data. Lots of Facebook's advertisers, employees, investors, not to mention its users, are increasingly concerned after the company's admission that up to 87 million people, mostly in the United States, had their personal information harvested by a consultancy firm that has counted President Trump among its clients. This is how Senator Nelson, the top Democrat on the Senate Commerce Committee, addressing Mark Zuckerberg at the start of the session.
9: Let me just cut
6: to the chase. If you and other social media companies do not get uh, your act in order, none of us are going to have any
1: privacy anymore. And in the past hour, Mark Zuckerberg began his testimony.
9: Facebook is an idealistic and optimistic company. For most of our existence we focused on all of the good that connecting people can do. And as Facebook has grown, people everywhere have gotten a powerful new tool for staying connected to the people they love, for making their voices heard, and for building communities and businesses. Just recently, we've seen the Me Too movement and the March for Our Lives organized, at least in part, on Facebook. After Hurricane Harvey, people came together to raise more than $20 million for relief and more than 70 million small businesses use Facebook to create jobs and grow. But it's clear now that we didn't do enough to prevent these tools from being used for harm as well. And that goes for fake news, for foreign interference in elections and hate speech, as well as developers and data privacy. We didn't take a broad enough view of our responsibility, and that was a big mistake. And it was my mistake, and I'm sorry.
1: Well, someone who can give us an insight into how Mark Zuckerberg might be approaching today's hearing is his former colleague and former Facebook executive, Antonio Garcia Martinez. He developed Facebook's advertising system, so is himself not a million miles away from the concerns about Facebook now. I spoke to him just as the meeting got underway in Congress. He personally knew Mark Zuckerberg, and he told me today's proceedings definitely wouldn't be his old colleague's favourite gig
10: looking at it right now indeed it is uh quite the ordeal i actually i could tell he walked in when i heard all the camera shutters going off at once and um yeah there's almost it's almost like a car accident in a way and everyone's kind of craning their necks to see the great zuckerberg walk in he looks scared well <laughs> i mean i'm an amateur psychologist but uh, you know he often has kind of a strange expression on his face and what was your impression of how he operated
1: person to person
10: well in the the times that I spent with him, he, you know, was very much in charge of the proceedings of whatever meeting we were in. He clearly was is the leader. Um, but he often lets others sort of take the lead and sort of the management of of the meeting itself. And you know, when he does speak, he speaks very directly and very curtly and he expects clear, coherent answers very quickly. But in terms of his public addresses, yeah, occasionally he can be sort of meandering. I I don't think he's a great public speaker, so I can't imagine He's going to somehow uh, you know, sway or woo the American public with
1: his appearance today. He's clearly there to try to do just that. He's put a suit on for a start, which is unusual.
10: <laughs> it is. I mean, he, he rather famously has um, in the past, for example, worn a hoodie to the roadshow that preceded Facebook's IPO in sort of a dig at the formality of Wall Street. But I think he can't get away with that level of cheek, I think, right now.
1: He has a speech pre-written. I don't know to what extent he wrote it, but it's all set out and been passed to the media in advance. Uh, Perhaps the harder bit for him will be at the end of it when he faces questions.
10: You know, yeah, I I doubt he read it himself. It it kind of read like a PR press release. You know, these these sort of congressional hearings, right, they they don't actually have legal standing in the U.S. The the whole point of it is to show your tax dollars at work and having American senators drilling and making Zuck sweat. I mean, that's kind of the point of this whole show.
1: He's made big apologies in writing. We're almost used to Mark Zuckerberg's mea culpa by now. Uh, But he's (laughs) going to have to be very convincing and, and just as... As fulsome, I think is the word people use in person. Yeah, again, look,
10: I mean, the U.S. is kind of a puritanical society, right? And they expect a penitent uh, Zuckerberg.
1: and And I suspect they'll get that. What do you make of the way Facebook appears to have acted with regards to the way personal data was handled?
10: Well, so, as perhaps is not surprising, I'm not as critical as I think the general consensus is now. I mean, certainly they, they, they should be criticized for having taken so long to respond. Um, They knew about the Cambridge Analytica thing for at least two years. I, I somehow don't kind of go along with putting the entire weight of the world on Facebook and Zuckerberg's shoulders. Are you broadly.
1: surprised by the size of the public outcry? A little bit.
10: You know, Facebook has these privacy blobs every year or two. Um, It's had some famous ones in the past. You know, you have some crescendo of complaint and it kind of goes away. This one has certainly lasted a lot longer. But, again, I think the stakes are a lot higher, right? It's it's one thing to, you know, overshare some of your personal data. It's another thing to be perceived as having gotten Trump into office or Brexit or or what have you. So, yeah, I, I do think the stakes are considerably
1: higher. And from your time at Facebook, how much do you go by this defense that it's always been the company's first priority to bring people together? Advertising was always secondary.
10: Oh, I totally believe it. And I, and I know most people don't believe that. But I can assure you that at least when I was there, ads was definitely a, a second class citizen inside the company. Zuck doesn't care about ads or revenue by and large. You know, he really is a believer in a more open and connected world. And he's sort of never going to stop until he gets the entire world staring at a at a Facebook screen. Right. And so in some sense, not being greedy is, is its own form of dangerousness, I think. I mean, he really is kind of a prophet of his own religion. and he, and, you, and him and everyone else at Facebook really do tend to believe in Facebook's mission. Um, And they really don't care about the short-term revenue picture that much, really.
1: Can I ask if you feel any personal responsibility having developed Facebook's advertising system?
10: You know, we designed this system, particularly some of the precision targeting stuff, what's called custom audiences, that aside from all the conspiracy theorizing, it's absolutely the case that Trump did use uh, some of the tools that we built, and it seems pretty clear they were effective. So, you know, I, I do feel kind of bad in the sense that the tools that we built were used for something other than selling you shoes or soap, which was, frankly, the original aim. Um, But I don't necessarily feel complicit in it, because, again, it would have been very difficult to imagine these use cases, you know, four or five years ago when the tools were developed.
1: What are the chances, do you think, of Mark Zuckerberg stepping down?
10: Zero. (laughs) Zero. Facebook stock would plunge if its, you know, brilliant leader CEO were to resign. I, I just don't see that happening at all.
1: Antonio Garcia Martinez, who's a former Facebook executive, And as proof of the continuing opposition Mark Zuckerberg is facing, British and U.S. lawyers have launched a joint class action today against Facebook, Cambridge Analytica, and two other firms they accused of misusing personal data of more than 71 million people. Their lawsuit claims that the firms used Facebook information on people to develop political propaganda campaigns on both sides of the Atlantic. Jason McHugh is a partner in his own law firm and he's leading the UK arm of this campaign.
8: The authorities are obviously looking into these companies now because people have realised things have gone very badly. And we think it's important that ordinary people, the actual users of Facebook, actually get their say and can put their pressure and seek to hold these companies accountable.
1: And what exactly are the people that you're representing saying to you? Are they angry? Yeah, people are upset. I've heard stories
8: of them likening this to sort of like bodily parts harvesting. You know, their personal identity has been harvested and used without their knowledge and approval. And they're right to be upset. And it's right that something is being done at the moment to try and hold these big businesses to account.
1: There are all different scales of upset, aren't there, among Facebook users, and many are simply saying, well, they did put their information out there with a company that used it for advertising and made it quite clear... Obviously, you're dealing with the more extreme examples.
8: Well, I think it's all about what you're talking about is the small sprint of the Facebook user regime, if you like. But what we're talking about here is where information has been passed on to a third-party company, which have actually used it for political manipulation. It's actually been used in elections, and no one signed up
1: for that. Is that the main grievance, that this has gone in a political direction? That's one of the
8: grievances. I think the other grievances is that it's a matter of using one's personal data outside the scope of what it was provided for. And I think what we're going to find in the coming weeks and months is that this story could get worse and worse. We could find out more and more.
1: When you talk about the scope of what personal information was provided for, that has yet to be clearly defined, surely, hasn't it?
8: Yes. I mean, it's going to be defined through the court case. There's no question about that. It's going to come out in the discovery process. It's going to come out in the evidential documents as the case unfolds.
1: And how far towards deflecting legal action does Mark Zuckerberg's personal apology go? Apologies, I should say.
8: Well, I'm pleased he made an apology because he should have done. But this is about accountability, not about apologies.
1: Jason McHugh, who is leading the British arm of a campaign on both sides of the Atlantic, a joint class action against Facebook. Dave Lee is our Silicon Valley reporter who's in Washington specifically for the hearing on Capitol Hill. He joins me from there. Give us, Dave, if you will, your highlights from this continuing meeting.
3: Yes, well, it's still going on. They uh, asked Mark Zuckerberg if he'd like a break. A few moments ago, he said, no, let's do another 15 minutes, although I don't think it'd be fair to say that he's enjoying it, but he he is handling it fairly well in places. We've just had an interesting exchange between uh, Mr. Zuckerberg and Senator Richard Blumenthal, a a Democrat who has been one of the biggest critics of Facebook uh, throughout the past year or so. Um, He challenged Mark Zuckerberg directly. He he produced uh, the contract that the company uh, had a, a, a agreed to allow on their, on their system that uh, allegedly enabled some of this enormous data collection that has been the, the cause of all this scandal to date. Uh, that was something Mark Zuckerberg said he hadn't seen before. Uh, and Senator Blumenthal basically said he feels that that contract and the uh, acceptance of Facebook to allow that app to be on its system uh, was in violation of, of an agreement it made in 2011. The reason why that's critical, Paul, is because if Facebook is found in a separate investigation to be in violation, of that agreement, a consent decree as it's known, they could be subject to enormous fines. We're talking many, many millions potentially. So that is a fairly pivotal moment and I think probably the most significant exchange we've heard so far. Um, But also in the same hearing, just to rattle off some of the things we've heard for you, um, uh, Mr Zuckerberg also said that members of his team, although not himself personally, uh, have been interviewed uh, by the Office of Special Counsel Robert Muller, of course, as we know, is uh, leading the investigation into Russian meddling in the U.S. presidential election. They've covered a lot of ground, and it's not quite finished yet, and then they'll do it all again tomorrow.
1: Mark Zuckerberg said, didn't he, that
3: uh, of
1: the Facebook terms of service, I don't think the average person likely reads that whole document. Talk about stating the obvious. (laughs)
3: <laughs> yes, absolutely. The, those terms of service were produced in paper form, and um, it, was, it was like a, a copy of the Yellow Pages or something like that, an enormous document that nobody in their right mind w- would ever read. In Facebook's defence, Mark Zuckerberg said that his company has gone to uh, pretty long lengths to, to explain that privacy policy in plain English using illustrations and so forth. But even then, I don't think senators were fully convinced that the company had made every effort to show how that data could be used in other ways. There's a lot Mr Zuckerberg still has to do to convince them that he's able to control Facebook and get it out of the mess it's in right now.
1: Dave Lee, our correspondent on Capitol Hill. Many thanks.
2: Uh, and that was um, Paul Henley, BBC World Service reporter there with their report on the investigation into the conduct of Facebook into the harvesting of uh, Facebook user data. And as David Lee said, there's a lot more that Mr Zuckerberg still has to do to convince people. Um, yesterday, uh, I think in the Parliament of the UK, the second whistleblower, Brittany Kayser, who is a former Cambridge Analytica executive, mentioned that... Um, you know, apps and quizzes like Sex Compass gathered data from way more than 87 million Facebook users, Uh, and she says, you know, the Facebook fiasco affects more than those people, Um, and she also said that uh, lawmakers use numerous questionnaires to gather data, and the data was collected with consent and limited to tens of thousands, Uh, and as we know, Mark Zuckerberg has repeatedly apologised for the data breach. We did... um, have the uh, BBC World Service report, I think, um, uh, highlighted again yesterday by our other morning team. But it's just, uh, yeah, to give you a bit of an update as to how the British lawmakers are conducting an inquiry into, I guess, fake news and the Facebook data scandal. Um, The the US investigations obviously happened, but now the uh, British Parliament um, is, yeah, getting into its own investigation into Cambridge Analytica. Um, I guess we'll never know the number of people who uh, were affected. Um, You know, I guess some people that have used um, some of those apps and and even used uh, through similar routes that have been used by Kogan is much greater than 87 million. Um, And I guess during that hearing on Tuesday, um, Brittany was talking really about how that data has been accessed and what has been done with it. Um, I might get to move on to our next guest now and try and organise that. Uh, June 2013, roughly, um, even around that time, there was a, 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 a blaze at the Rana Plaza, which collapsed in Bangladesh, which killed more than 1,100 people and injured and injured and injured more an injured more than um oh two thousand five hundred? Uh, and the 24th of April is the fifth anniversary of the tragedy. That time we spoke to uh, Michelle O'Neill, who was the uh, TCFUA National Secretary, um, and she was talking you know, about the blood, sweat and tears behind labels for Australian retailers, including Kmart, Target. And what they'd had was a, uh, a benefit um, for Bangladesh Clothing Factory workers. Um, we know that around that time, in June t- 2013, four corners had broadcast a story on Monday but to um You know, continue that with that anniversary coming. There is a small family-run ethical fashion company based in Baronia called Etico. And I guess um, what I wanted to do was have a quick chat with the founder and director about the environmental impact of the fashion industry, especially around human rights abuses. So joining us now on the line, we are joined by Nick Savaidis, Etico founder and director. Good morning, Nick.
7: Morning, Dean, and morning, listeners.
2: Thanks for uh, joining us on 3CR. Um, I, I mentioned um, that uh, obviously the, the, the 24th of April is the fifth anniversary of this um, tragedy where you know, the, the factory workers in Bangladesh had to um, endure these horrid conditions, working conditions, but also ultimately end up dying. Um, and you have a, a family-run business uh, based in Boronia, which has been given an A-plus in the Australian Ethical Fashion Report for the fifth year in a row. Can you tell us a little bit about um, ethical and, I guess, why you decided to go down this ethical um, path?
7: Sure. Uh, well, yeah, um, as you're right, the, the Baptist World Aid Report, which is also known as the Australian Ethical Fashion Report, came out uh, yesterday and it ranked 400-plus uh, brands and from the least ethical to the most ethical. And um, yeah, we got an A-plus for the fourth, uh, fifth time in a row, together with uh, this time, about three other brands join us uh, at that kind of level and two of those three other brands actually use our supply chain. So, yeah, we'd like to think that um, you know, we are the most ethical fashion brand in Australia and, and um, you know, we've been doing this a long time before the Rana Plaza tragedy happened. Uh, the Rana Plaza tragedy, meant I, just, I still can't get over the the amount of people who who died in that tragedy and the people who were injured as well. But it wasn't the first uh, um, disaster in the fashion industry where people were killed, and it wasn't the last. um, If you look over the past three or four years, there's unfortunately been plenty of people who've been killed or poisoned or suffered while working in the fashion industry, and uh, people continue to suffer um, in 2018. um, There were workers rioting in Bangladesh earlier this year. Uh, There were workers protesting uh, regularly in Cambodia. I and mean, it goes on. Mm. and um, But um, yeah, we started to go back in 2006, so many years before the Rana Plaza tragedy, because uh, I've been aware of the exploitation of workers in the fashion industry for a very long time, and actually, in fact, uh, more than 40, 50 years, because uh, my mother worked in the fashion industry when I was growing up, and it was one of those home workers who, who was paid a few cents to make garments that were being sold in retailers in... Uh, in Melbourne for a lot more, and uh, yeah, there was always a kind of frustration that yeah, uh, you know, my <laughs> mother was being yeah, course, <laughs> was being paid so little, yeah. and uh, these fashion brands were making uh, some serious money. But yeah. you know, what do you do babe, when you're a kid? And yeah, uh, you know, when I was at university, I started reading a new internationalist magazine, and kind of realised the exploitation of workers wasn't just restricted to Australia; that it was an international phenomenon, and it was actually just getting worse. Um, as globalisation was actually occurring. And um, I figured, um, you know, I used to talk, I actually qualified as a high school teacher and I used to talk to students about the impact of globalisation and we look at issues such as child labour and social labour and the kids would get really upset, especially when you show them photos or videos. But then Mm. when it came to free dress days, they'd turn up in the very brands that were doing that exploitation and a lot of, Teachers, you know, I was was a teacher and a lot of teachers had this perception or self-perception of being left-wing or centre-left. And we used to sit around in the staff room talking about the evils of multinationals. And then uh, we'd we'd go out and buy the cheapest sports gear and cheapest school uniforms. Mm. It was a complete disconnection.
2: Um, and since then, though, since 2013, I mean, obviously with your business and what's happening, have you seen a, a, a shift um, in the industry? I mean, uh, I guess from that time, I got a sense that companies were, atten- were attempting to distance themselves from, I guess, the responsibility by no longer sort of directly employing um, manufacturing workers or owning their own factories. They sort of uh, went around it in, 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 I guess, the back way, so to speak.
7: Well, they've been doing that since the you nineteen know, um, you know, you know, seventies. I'm not aware of any major fashion brand who actually owns its own factories. I mean, my own brand, we don't own any factories either, but we work with factories to help them you know, get to a level which we think is acceptable and uh, um, which kind of could guarantee any ethical claims that we kind of make. Mm. Um, but you know. Over, since that report, since the Australian Ethical Fashion Report has started coming out on a regular basis and there, and there is more scrutiny around the world about what's going on in the fashion industry, um, I think most fashion brands are trying to really ensure that the worst of the worst practices aren't happening anymore mm. um, and that they are doing everything kind of legal, that you know, workers are working in factories which aren't going to collapse um, where people are being paid at least the minimum wage. Um, but what's... Unfortunately, happening is there. All the focus is on happening in the, is what happening in the factory area where the garments are actually manufactured. No one's actually looking at um, where the cotton is actually, where the fabrics actually dyed, uh, where the fabrics actually been woven, uh, and, and very few people are looking at where the cotton um, comes from because there's plenty of serious exploitation in the cotton growing industry as well. Mm. In, um, young kids involved in you know, as long as as young as six. Working in cotton fields, um, yeah, all helping keep fashion cheap.
2: And, and I um, guess it's it's all about um, you know some of those countries also being desperate to maintain and grow their garment industries with global brands sort of being desperate for for I guess us to wear and buy their labels while the, the workers and their families are, are are desperate. Are you are you finding that having um, the fair trade um, certified in Australia, New Zealand? um is a, is a good thing for for the business are you finding that people have become more aware you know because obviously there used to be brand specific codes and i guess more importantly there was self regulation um and private sector audits which ultimately didn't really probably work for for the industry sure.
7: so yeah um I think uh, there are more and more conscious consumers, people who want to apply their values to their purchasing decisions. I mean, if you ask most of your friends, do they oppose the use of child labour, sweatshop and slave labour? I'm sure they're all going to say, yes, they do, as most of your listeners would as well. But the question is, what are they actually doing about it? So it's fine to say that you believe in this stuff, but what actually, are you going to put your money where your mouth is? Mm. And Mm. and, people are looking for some kind of direction. They want to know that, you know, okay, how do I know that this... T shirt is ethically made, so they're looking for some kind of accreditation, and that's why the Fair Trade logo is so important because that is in, you know, independent. The Fair I mean, there are actually quite a few ethical uh, accreditations out there popping up. You know, some are more credible than others, but the Fair Trade logo, the one you see on coffee and chocolate, I believe is the most, uh, most, the most credible one because it's actually. The, the label itself is now actually overseen by the people, the very people who benefit from it. So it's the farmers and the workers involved in the supply chains who are who are on the board. Um, they're actually the majority of the board that oversees the fair trade label, so they have pretty high expectations when when a, a product has the fair trade label on it. Mm. So, you know, and that gives a lot of consumers kind of confidence that, you know, it is genuinely having a positive impact on the lives of, of workers and farmers and, yeah. You know, um, so, but you know the Australian ethical Fashion report um, is kind of shining a light on the issue of ethical supply chains, and you know, we have got an A plus every year that report has come out, but we've also got some concerns uh, about the report because um, the gap between what I consider the genuine ethical brands and everyone else is not reflected by that report. so a company like Etico, which can prove that they pay the workers in their supply chains a living wage. As opposed to the minimum wage, gets an A plus, but a company that can't do that can get an A, yeah.
3: Yeah.
7: which uh, yeah, it just doesn't it's seem. Right. like Plus the report, the, plus the report doesn't take into consideration the environmental impact of um, the fashion industry, mm. um, about the impact of each uh, environmental impact of each fashion brand. So everything we do is certified organic, yeah. even the rubber that we use in our. Fullwear is actually FSC certified FSC is the forest stewardship council and our brand is also hundred percent vegan so you know the abuse of and exploitation of animals isn't just restricted to the food industry it also yeah. happens in the fashion
3: industry in the fashion. and
7: you know, we refuse to be you know, we refuse to be any you know, include any exploit animal exploitation in our supply chain but we don't get credit for that in the report. So, okay.
3: You know, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. And and so I guess that um, we're speaking to Nick Savides, Etico founder and director. Um, and, and I guess what are some of then the challenges? You talked about, you know, people being able to see the Fairtrade logo on coffee yep. and, and things like that. How does that then get translated into fashion? Because, you know, yes, there are obviously these brands which might not be an A+, plus, but they're an A+. And then, and as you say, some of our listeners are very, very educated. How do they then immediately get to recognise something that is an A-plus compared to an A?
7: Well, look at some of the other reports which have different you know, measurements. I mean, the Ox, Oxfam have come up with a pretty good report on uh, fashion brands, and especially, the, but they tend to focus on the big brands rather than the small brands. Mm. But they kind of um, look into the supply chains of some of the bigger brands so a company that got a A or a B, I forgot which um, one it was in the latest Australian Fashion Report, got a very poor score in the Oxfam Report. Yeah. Because yeah. they're looking at different measurements. I mean, I can, I can understand what, why they're being graded that way because if, if, if the Australian Ethical Fashion Report gets, goes too hard on these big organisations, they're going to refuse to participate.
2: Yeah, yeah. So which in some way could thing. be their loss, but then... You know, you're sort of not getting um, everybody being being judged, I guess, because they're not participating. So consumers are unaware. Yeah, well,
7: yeah, yeah. but you know, they've got to be encouraged. They've got to be pushed towards paying workers a living wage. I mean, in Bangladesh, you know, where a lot of Australian fashion brands now source their 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 clothing, um, the minimum wage is around thirty eight dollars a month. Mm. But the the local unions and the are telling us the living wage is around $140 a month, which is still incredibly low. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it's a huge difference between $38 and $140 a month, and you know, we can't work out why these big brands just doesn't don't just pay that extra to make sure that the workers pay, achieve the living wage. I mean, if we're a small brand like Etico can do it, can do it for more than ten years. Why can't some of the bigger brands do it?
2: Yeah, and, it, uh,
7: and it, obviously we're not making the kind of profits that. Uh, the major fashion brands are, um, are making. Um, yeah. yeah, We're, st- we're still a niche activist brand, um, but yeah, we, should, you know, we believe that n- no fashion brand should be allowed to sell their clothing in Australia unless they can actually prove that they're paying workers a living wage.
2: And, and I think you touched on um, you know, that environmental impact. Obviously, um, that whole industry, you know, in Bangladesh is, is probably worth, you know, somewhere around $20 billion or something like that. But what you're finding is that, you know, if they did, the bigger companies maybe did raise the minimum wage, what would happen then is companies would then continue to keep searching the globe to find the lowest labor yeah, costs I mean, and, and you know, keep it, claiming ignorance.
7: They don't give a, yeah, they don't care a toss about the welfare of their workers. I mean, what they're interested in is their bottom line and they'll just move around the world, you know, to find the cheapest source of production. Mm. And there's no loyalty. I mean, uh, there was about uh, three years ago, um, Adidas uh, reported this massive increase in profit. It um, was about $3 billion, No, it was actually $6 billion in profit. And um, that was their biggest profit that they'd ever made in, in their history. And about a month after, they, and they were producing the majority, majority of their clothing in uh, in China. Mm. But within a month... A month later, they were saying that they were having to leave China because the cost of production had escalated too high for them. I thought, wait on, you just recorded <laughs> like your highest dollars. profit ever, yeah. and you you're saying cost, the cost of production is too high. I Man, get serious. <laughs> so you know, when I when I hear big fashion brands talking about ethics and supply chains, I, I take it with. The grain of
2: salt, yeah. Um, Yeah. You could talk about this all morning, mate, and I guess just so, you know, our listeners can can understand, I think what is really really impactful was you know how you spoke about um you know the, the cotton industry and even the rubber that you saw so I guess that environmental impact of the clothes you wear is quite important where can our listeners go to to, to have a quick look at their report and, and work out for themselves you know what, what they are willing to sort of investigate regarding the, the ethics of their clothing
7: well um if you just Google Australian Ethical Fashion Report, um, I'm sure you'll find plenty of links to it. Yeah. Um, yeah, we'd also encourage listeners to start thinking about their own choices, um, not just their personal choices, but any, any organisation they're involved in. I'm not sure how many you know, students you have in your, in your audience, but you know, every school in Australia talks to students about the importance of social justice and sustainability. Then they go buy sweatshirt-made school uniforms and you know, often buy sports gear made by child labour. So, you know, we're, we're trying to encourage people to start shopping their values. Um, I mean, we'd also encourage people to look at our website, which is etiko, etiko.com.au, and uh, even visit, I mean, for the listeners in the inner, inner suburbs, um, the the vegans, vegan style in uh, Brunswick Street, Fitzroy, are one of our stockers and you can actually see our products there. But, uh, yeah, we've got a, a shop and office in Baronia, and... Uh, people kind of puzzle why an ethical, eco-friendly uh, fashion brand would be based out in this area. Uh, it's because we all live around the area yeah. and we can't be bothered driving, <laughs> having long commutes. So it think that's pretty <laughs> sustainable, uh, keep everything pretty close. Yeah, um, yeah. But um, yeah, we need people to become uh, not just conscious consumers, but that we also need them to become conscientious consumers. Yeah. So you know, I think the majority of your listeners would have heard of sweatshop labour, child labour, slave labour. question is, what are they actually going to do about it and uh, yeah. but uh, no it's been interesting no there is a growing Movement there. awareness of the issues that we we're kind of talking about, but there's a lot more to be done um In the space. amount of waste that's created by the fashion industry is pretty staggering i mean we I, I come across brands major brands who go you, know, you, you, know, you they tell us about the amount of fabric they throw away every year um uh, last year uh, we managed to salvage about fifty three thousand meters of fabric. Uh, that's 53 kilometres of fabric that a fashion, another fashion brand was going to put into landfill because they were closing one of their operations.
2: Yeah, yeah. Oh, and, and don't uh, get me started uh, on the and
7: landfill and side.
2: That's another yeah,
7: issue. Well, but, yeah, well, someone suggested to them that they should give it to an ethical fashion brand, and they said, look, can you do anything with it? And I said, yeah, we, we can take it. We can take so, it, yeah. We, no, uh, no, no, we no. weren't able to sell it under our own brand because uh, with Etico, everything we do has to be certified organic and, and fair trade. And I did ask the brand if, they, if there was any you know any cre- credentials, um, any ethical supply chain involved in that fashion in the fabric they, were, they had. And they said, yes, of course we do. But they weren't able to give me any, any certification to that effect. <laughs> so we couldn't actually... Sell it under our own brand. So what we did is we sold the fabric to other fashion brands and uh, you know, people who wanted to make their own stuff. And uh, a lot of people want to use c- for curtains and furniture. Uh, but then the, the vast majority we donated to animal shelters, uh, projects working with refugees, and then the majority that we sent we gave to World Vision to send to some of their social enterprises in uh, the, in Africa.
3: Yeah.
7: So we've been now sent f- uh, photos of. Young kids running around in clothing that was made with fabric that we managed to salvage in Australia. Uh, oh, that's, eight great. Yes. that's of it. great. And, things. uh, and then since then, you know, we've been offered, uh, other brands have come to us and said, so look, do you want to take 20,000 meters? And we also come across fashion brands who have told us that they actually burn their fabric, uh, because
2: we, they don't yeah, want, want
7: other people having access to the, uh, their designs.
2: Yeah, well, Nick, and that's a story for another time, but uh, we really appreciate you joining us on, on 3CR and I guess giving us an insight. I mean, this, um in, in five days' time, obviously, uh, this will be back in the news again and hopefully some of the, the bigger brands can be, you know, held accountable for, for some of their um, lack of um, cooperation and I guess improving their worker standards. But thanks for joining us on 3CR. All the best. Thank you. All the best to the listeners. Bye for now. Bye. And that was uh, Nick Savides, who is the um, founder and director of Etigo. Artists Amanda Ketterer and Rosemary Williams have joined together to present their exhibition, Beyond the Layers, exploring colour, texture and layering and capturing fragile beauty and imperfections of ageing. The exhibition at Space 2B, 144 Chapel Street, Balaclava, runs till May 4th. Space 2B profits fun programs supporting creative projects, workplace training and business mentoring to support newly arrived citizens to Australia. Together we make a difference. Space 2B,
8: a 3CR supporter.
7: Want to support 3CR's diverse and independent voices? Donate now by calling 9419 8377 or donate online at www.3cr.org.au
0: or post as a cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277
8: Collingwood 3066.
2: You're back on 855 AM 3CR. A few years back, the federal government was, uh, I guess, spruiking its work for the Dole scheme, uh, you know, with Australians being told that, uh, that the proposed scheme will, um, create, um, you know, 25 hours per week to, for people to receive their welfare payments for those aged between 31 and 49, um, having to work, um, 15 hours a week. Uh, two years ago, uh, Josh Park Fing um, passed away, um, and he was part of the work for for the Dole scheme and his anniversary is coming up and there is a Work for the Dole rally in Martin Place, Sydney today between 1 and 3pm and I think it's uh, been organised by the AUW um, with a gathering of politicians and unemployed workers together addressing the dangers of Work for the Dole program. To find out a little bit more about this we're joined by Josie Evans who is the um, AUW UW Inner West Branch member. Good morning, Josie. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on uh, 3CR. Thanks for having me. Um, so you've got a, a public forum and I guess more importantly a uh, memorial for Josh Park Fing's death. Can you give us a, a bit of an insight into what happened to Josh? Uh,
5: Josh was working at the Toowoomba showground and he was... Um, doing some work on the ground there, gardening and landscaping and that kind of thing. And um, he was on the back of a a flatbed truck and he fell off and died. Um, Before that, he went to his job search agency and complained that it was unsafe, but they ignored him and sent him back there.
2: Hmm. And that was Um, part of his um, work for the doll. Program participation. That
5: that was. Um, And the federal government promised that they would have an investigation into this and the report would be ready a month later. Two years later, it's not even released yet. And one of the, the demands of our rally is to have that report released.
2: So the, the report itself has been um, done and concluded, but it's not available to anybody. I guess um, to I guess let people know what exactly happened and and, and what the effects of, of you know his his death were.
5: Uh, yeah, I think it may be because once the report is released, then um, people may be held liable. For example, Michaela Cash, and then her job may be. Um, you know, in
2: danger, so, so maybe in danger of losing a job so the idea today for this rally, I guess is all about uniting um you know local people and I guess advocates and politicians because I notice you've got um uh Lee Rhiannon talking there and Ed husick um talking and a few work for the dole participants who have been exposed to dangerous conditions uh talking there to raise awareness yeah, exactly
5: um these sites. Um, there's no, there's no safety there, and people are often abused. And um, there's no actual pathway to employment. Only two percent of people during the scheme actually get paid work.
2: So, um, so that would mean that, you know, work for the doll uh, over the years, since its introduction, must have consistently failed to provide sustainable work opportunities and, and, and from what you're saying, the evidence would suggest that it may in fact, um, increase the length of, of joblessness as well.
5: Um, <clears throat> yes, um, em- employers look down on people who are doing work for the doll. Um, so they're unlikely and also, as well as that, it is an abusive system which really um in impacts on people's mental health, their confidence. So instead of making them more likely to work, makes them less likely, likely to work, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Can can I read you out some people have um written into AUWU about their experiences and um can I read you out a couple of them?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess, uh, I mean, obviously the reason this is also being held is that this comes after the, the government has chosen to expand the controversial work for the Dole Program through its welfare reform package, which um, yeah. you guys believe will put the lives of more unemployed Australians at risk. But, yeah, sure, just read me out a, a couple. Okay. Um, one person wrote in and said,
5: Made to use a jackhammer and perform construction work for an extension to a church. Supervisor was a taskmaster, worse than any employer I've had. Another person said, four to five hours straight a day vacuuming, cleaning, mopping the whole complex. Ended up laid up after a week from back and neck injury for two months. Okay. Yeah. yeah.
9: <laughs> yeah. I mean,
5: there's, there are hundreds of stories like that, like exploitative, humiliating, dangerous. And it's only a matter of time before someone else loses their life and not only that it, there's, a, there's a racist scheme especially for Aboriginal people called Community Development Program where 30,000 people are on it and they have even worse conditions
2: hmm. and I guess for you guys is it, is it more about cl- sending a clear message to the coalition that you won't accept more more Australians being forced to work for nothing at dangerous work sites um, more so than um, the scheme itself? I mean, if people were going to jobs that were safe, would that be something that you'd ex- accept as well or are you just sort of thinking there should be a better a better model to tackle um, joblessness and yeah. unemployment?
5: Well, one of our demands as the AUWU is to scrap work for the dole. We, we think it doesn't work. There are so many problems with it. Mm. It's basically free labour for the bosses. It's humiliation for the unemployed workers. And we want jobs for everyone. Yeah. We, we think that is it is wholly possible and there's plenty of examples of corporate welfare where the government is handing out money to the rich. Why don't they put that money where it would be better used to meet people's basic needs?
2: And I read that the, the Government Commission report um, from, uh, from your press release I had a quick look that 64% of Work for the Dole Sites are not complying with standard workplace health and safety procedures. And then on the other side, you've obviously got the, um, you know, the, that massive campaign that the government has, which is work safe inspectors going around to work sites to inspect, um, you know, how businesses uh, protect their workers. Seems like a bit of a, you know, slap in the face if, if, if 64% of the people who are providing the Work for the Dole scheme can't even provide safe working environments for their employees. Oh well, not being poor is, but yeah, free labour.
5: Yeah, well, it goes to show that there's a different attitude. I mean, I think this is part of the um, part of the plan to marginalise and divide in in order to control. I mean, there's, it's a very good idea to have a certain section of the population that are uh, scapegoats scapegoated for all the problems of the world so and problems of the country so the population don't look at who's really causing the problems which is the politicians they Mm. need to be held to account and they need to do their job
2: and, and I guess the other thing is um, today, then at one o'clock, I think you're holding it at, at the, outside the Channel Seven studios. Um, who, who some of the speakers, um, you know, including Lee Ryan. what do you expect to hear from from them? And and what what are they saying? They're going to be um, doing to tackle this uh, issue of um, work for the doll. Ah uh, well, Lee Riannon the
5: Greens is totally against work for the doll. They want it scrapped as well mm. um, Ed Hughzik, who's the Shadow minister for employment, um he has made noises about scrapping it as well, but um I have to listen carefully to his words <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so we'll be hearing um what they you know what they want to do in the future and um holding them to account and and putting pressure on them to do
2: the right thing and uh, so you're calling on uh, yeah, anybody or any of our listeners who you know might be in the Sydney area to come to Martin Place. Uh, the rally is on from one o'clock till three pm uh, yes. and and I guess it, as, as I mentioned, it's uh, more of a public forum as well as a memorial to um, you know uh, josh Park Fing, who who passed away while participating in the work for the doll scheme.
5: Yes, we want to hear the stories of people who have experienced work for the doll and we want to get it out there because a lot of people don't know. You know, it's it's hidden, and the more people know, the more pressure we can put on the government to scrap this.
8: And so, I, I
2: guess, it's more, yeah, more importantly, you know, the, the I get the feeling that um, rather than it being a path to success for unlucky Australian. It sort of represents a subsidy for menial work that the market does not value uh, essentially you know why pay for a job when you can get someone um, to do it, to do it for free and and I guess um, exactly from what you're saying, it seems like um, a lot of employers aren't employing people who have done work for the dole um, and, and and people who might not have participated in the programme would probably generally find it easier to to find active employment more so than you know having participated in the programme.
5: Yeah, well, um, some people have written in and and said that they have witnessed people losing their jobs, paid employees, because there have been work-for-the-doll people coming in. So that's another issue.
2: Mm. Mm. Yeah, Yeah. no, um, good luck today, and and we really appreciate you just, yeah, giving us a a bit of an insight into... um, You know what the A U W, and I guess the whole idea of um, yeah the uh, issue of unemployment, and you mentioned you know how um, the indigenous population are are finding it even more um, of a of a of a I guess a a political minefield, in that it puts them even in the lower class in in terms of what they do out of it, and hopefully the uh, rally is, is a success.
5: Thank
2: you very much. Uh, thanks, Josie. We appreciate you joining us on 3CR. No worries. And that was uh, Josie Evans, who's the uh, a the Australian Unemployed Workers Union Inner West Branch member, talking to us about, um, yeah, uh, uh, something that I have never fully understood the uh well for the, the work for the dole. I know there was a period there when I was unemployed. Um, and you know go and getting the doll seemed like a great idea at the time. It was a long time ago i didn 't have to go to Centrelink all the time, but I did get uh, money in my pocket. But for those who have, haven 't been able to find um, employment i 'm sure there 's a lot of Australians out there who are looking for work and not necessarily just you know waiting around for the doll to be put in a situation where they are in a programme which um, is putting their lives at, at risk doesn 't seem right, especially when um, the government commission reports that sixty four percent of work for the dole sites do not fully comply with standard workplace health and safety and, and as uh, Josie said, they routinely hear stories from unemployed workers through their hotline about the health risks and dangers they encounter on these free labour sites. <laughs>
0: Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food.
9: Hi, my name's Paul. This is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great and really healthy and nutritious.
7: <laughs>
1: Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience.
0: A 3CR supporter.
2: Ah, uh, uh broken down by scrap metal. Um, yeah, it's been a, an interesting show. Uh, I sort of, uh, might have, will have to, um, you know, uh, leave a little bit earlier today, but I'm going to leave you with something exciting. Um, just quickly, uh, I mentioned earlier in the show that, um, we were, um, obviously, um, like to thank our Stolen Wealth Games contributors um over the last eleven days of the Stolen Wealth Games that were on and it was great to sort of uh see the continued action which, you know, was ever present in every day um of the games and it was interesting to hear um that there were some, you know, movements afoot um from certain organisations who believed that it was the right thing to do um and to acknowledge that um you know that the treatment of Indigenous people in, in that area or and around Australia should be taken into account. So, thanks to everybody that contributed to that, and thanks to everybody from 3CR who um, sent a team there to to help out. We were selling t-shirts. Hopefully the t-shirts are still there. So there's a Commonwealth, uh, so Gold Coast Stolen Wealth Games t-shirts. Uh, you can ring the studio on 94198377 if you're interested you might get a copy and there's some tote bags as well and maybe there might be one or two of the two color screen prints left don't don't quote me but just call the studio if you're interested um and the other thing that i wanted to mention and i tried to mention it last week uh, my co-host con as i mentioned earlier has a book called uh the power of hope or how community love compassion can change our world, and it's an inspiring memoir from Con Otis, founder of the Asylum Secret Resource Centre, which argues that by putting community love and compassion at the centre of our lives, we have the power to change the world. At 7.15, Paul Henley, um, BBC World Service reporter, talked to us about the conduct of Facebook, But um, continuing on from what I was saying about, um, you know, um, uh, putting community love and compassion at the centre of our lives, uh, we spoke to a business owner who is, um, you know, um, time to tackle. The, uh, impact of the fashion industry on human rights abuses, but also the environmental impact. So that was, uh, Nick Saviatis, who is the founder of a company called Etico, And they're the first non-food company to be fair trade certified in Australia. Uh, and it's also organic certified. So they use rubber, which is certified on their garments and, um, clothing that is, um, ethical and organic. Um, so that's a, a fantastic, um, initiative for a company that stand out stands out as the only company to demonstrate that everyone in the supply chain is paid a local living wage, um, especially in many countries where garments are manufactured uh, by the minimum wage as well as below a living wage. And then we also had Josie Evans, who is the uh, Inner West Branch member for the uh, Australian Union... I always say that wrong, Uh, (laughs) Australian Unemployed Workers' Union, who are hosting a memorial and public forum to commemorate the life of Josh Park Fing, who died while he was um, performing uh, a work for the Dole program. So the rally is on in Sydney at uh, Martin Place at 1pm till 3pm, and it will have speakers that will include Peter Davidson from ACOS and Lee Rhiannon, who's a Greens Party member, uh, just get down there to show their support obviously I mentioned earlier that the Australian Government uh, has chosen to dramatically expand the controversial work for the Dole Program through its welfare reform package as well but um, I will be back next week but what I thought I might do is let you listen to a fantastic uh, a piece by Phil Solomon, it's called Not Done Yet, and he's speaking about um, uh, a film he created about trans visibility, so, and it's all about, um, he's a multidisciplinary artist and designer, and the film talks about, uh, I guess, trans and gender diverse people in Nam, um, Melbourne, um, and the motivation behind making the film, the issues represented in the film, and the importance of trans visibility um, the film can be watched on uh, Vimeo, and the, mu- the, mu- the film features music by trans artist Simona and Zaya Barroso And the mural in the film was painted by artist David Lee Pereira. I uh, will see you. Well, you'll hear me next Thursday. <laughs> I won't see you. But uh, enjoy Phil Solomon. Not Done Yet is a documentary made
4: for last month's Transgender Day of Visibility, and its maker, Phil Solomon, joins us in the studio. Welcome, Phil. Welcome to 3 Up. Thank you for having me. Look, the issue uh, in, the, in the video goes well beyond visibility in terms of its exploration. What's its key message?
6: Um, look, uh, to be honest with you, I had two days. Uh, wow. So, <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. So from the point of knowing that I was definitely going to be doing the film and starting filming, Uh, to the edit going online. Um, I didn't have a lot of time to think about it. (laughs) Wow. Um, Yeah. So you're quite
4: spontaneous in terms of the crew that you got together because their stories were great. Yeah. Mm. How did you get people
6: together for it in two days? I didn't actually do anything, to be honest. (laughs) They came to you, they found you. Well, um, the the mural was actually painted by a friend of mine and he was the one who actually mentioned um, that it might be a thing because uh, I'd spoken to him about wanting to make a documentary for a while. So about... someone
4: was doing a mural with the trans flag, Yeah, yeah.
6: and uh,
4: word of mouth happened, and these networks just um, yeah. came to work for you, basically.
6: Yeah. Well, Tom and Alan, who were featured in the film, uh, they were painting with, with, um, with David, uh, and then Finn and, and, uh, and also Kay sort of um, were hanging around and, and chatting and and so I, I felt, you know, this is perfect. I didn't really need to, I didn't really need to try very hard to, to get them. Wow. Mm. Yeah.
0: How collaborative was the project?
6: Well, um, I, I filmed the whole thing I, um, and did the interviews and edited it. So in essence, it wasn't very collaborative okay. at all. <laughs> but, uh, but I actually did show all of the people who were involved. Um and and made sure that they were happy with how they were rep- represented and, and that kind of thing.
4: Because they're it, a really diverse crew and I found it yeah. really striking uh when there was one person talking about, well actually, you know, I don't want to be visible. Yeah. yeah. You know, which brought up issues around dead names yeah. and misgendering. Yeah. Tell us about that person's story because it was it was really poignant.
6: Yeah, well, um Finn uh works in a quite a conservative industry. Uh and and doesn't doesn't feel like they need to, or he, sorry, um, needs to kind of put it out there, and uh, you know he has a, a strong network of, of friends, trans and non non trans, and uh, and they just they just want to, uh, he just wants to get along with, you know, living, and and you know sometimes that's really hard. But he seemed to you make know. a
0: distinction between um, whether you whether you can be visible or whether you would want to be visible yeah,
6: um, yeah yeah and and I think the whole the whole point of the film is not so much individual visibility, I think it 's more about knowing and understanding that there are trans people out there mm. and they may not present as trans and they may not you know you might not be able to tell just by looking at them. But the point is to kind of be aware of of the unique challenges that they face and, you know, just kind of um, think about that, I guess. Mm. That was the the kind of point that I was trying to get across because my my understanding of trans, you know, is is continually evolving and and this film definitely, you know, enlightened me quite Mm. a lot. And I think for me it was just about, you know, just getting... Trans people to actually tell their mm. stories rather than speaking for them
0: so, so this film it 's a starting point of a long a longer film project, and you 've put the call out for people to contribute their stories yeah so what kind of stories are you hoping to find well um
6: look i'm not i 'm not sort of uh, defining that at this stage, but I guess what i 'd really like to hear is is the other side of you know the trans experience that we don 't get to see, so you know there, there is you know a lot of um a lot of, I guess you could say, celebrities or, or, mm-hmm. or personalities that kind of are in the spotlight. But um, but there's a lot of people who don't kind of fit in that kind of easily packageable, you know. And you, you,
4: your interviewees touched on that. You know, they yeah. touched on social exclusion,
6: yeah. which seemed to be an
4: undercurrent throughout the throughout the discussions.
6: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's kind of awful in a way how you know even as a gay man even as part of that lgbtqia plus um community i you know i i know so little about trans people and and what they face and the, the problems that they face and the you know the achievements that they've had as well um so yeah so i guess um and that's because in my social network you know it's not I don't usually come across trans people on my, in my daily life, and that's not out of any kind of. Um, um, sorry, it's about the <laughs> visibility. It's and, about the visibility. And
4: the Exa- exactly. And, and it's interesting because exactly. one of your guests said, "Look, you know, people talk about marriage equality, and we've we've got that, and yeah. that's great. Yeah. But the next step in the evolution, I suppose, of LGBTI rights yeah. is." Is one component of it is is trans visibility definitely. and gender identity, uh, because we're much more than just the G and the L bits yeah. in the in the rainbow composition. Yeah, exactly, mm. exactly.
0: Do you think our mainstream media coverage of trans and gender diverse people I- is improving?
6: Uh, definitely. I mean, you know, I <laughs> I'm going to get uh, slaughtered for saying this, but I don't really <laughs> watch um, uh, RuPaul's Drag Race. Uh, either is do that, I
0: is that I actually is that like I don't know there's a whole bunch of shows like that, that like Project Runway or something I don't sure, know Isn't yeah. it, is it like a modelling competition it's uh, kind of like
4: a bitchy modelling competition oh okay yeah.
0: Yeah. aren't but, they all you know. well, I suppose it transcends bitchiness. <laughs> okay yeah. right.
6: so, so um, the point of me bringing that up is that uh, RuPaul has recently um, uh, you know been called out for being quite transphobic and it's it's kind which of... Which is ironic, isn't which, it? Which, uh, yeah, I mean, it's kind of ridiculous. Um, but it still happens. And it still happens. And, and transphobia is rampant in the, in the gay community specifically, which is, is kind of horrific. And so... And mainly through ignorance as well, simply yeah. because of that lack of exposure
4: that exactly. you talked about.
6: Yeah, exactly. And I think, um, you know, that incident and others have just brought out the the point that, you know, it's, it's. People just need to know. People need to be educated. Was there an incident with RuPaul? See, I, I, I'm so RuPaul
4: ignorant. I yeah. did so know it, there was an incident, but it yeah. sounds like there was. Yeah. So well, Ru, Ru,
0: who is. RuPaul is a. He's a. He, a, a drag, he's a, a singer
4: turned um, reality TV star. Yeah. Right. He yeah.
0: it
6: has a show called RuPaul's Drag Race on cable no. TV. No. Not no. Trans. no, he's. He he is. Uh, um, a drag queen, okay, and and presents as male, but you know wears wears women's clothing and, mm-hmm. and performs and things like which that. which
4: is a real kind of a pardon the pun a a head fuck isn't it you know <laughs> that you've got like a a drag queen who's transphobic yeah yeah you and know I, that's a that's a
6: real kind of you know yeah. a tough one yeah. Mm. yeah and and so you know um he has said that he wouldn't well I'm not sure if he said he he wouldn't or he is uncomfortable about having actual trans people on the show, Um, you know, because... How you know, ridiculous. I know, because it's well, it's almost like well, drag has turned into this, like, boys club, like everything else, you know?
0: Does he give a reason for why?
6: Uh, look, I, I don't want to <laughs> really comment because I've okay. only heard the sort of mm. basics of yeah, what he's... Well, said, I would, really awesome.
4: Who I yeah. would like to ask for comment on that is Caitlyn Jenner. What would she say to RuPaul? Right. Yeah,
6: yeah, well... Who knows? Who knows? Mm. I, I don't really want to <laughs> mm. guess for her.
0: I wanted to get back to your film, if yeah. you could, briefly. Yeah, sure. Um sure. The, the sculpture that's featured in it. Could you yeah. tell us a bit about that?
6: Oh, I was really hoping you wouldn't ask me about that. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> okay, <laughs> we can not? move on. I have other stuff. I, right? I just can't remember the name of the, the person who oh, inspired it. I but that's okay. Tell us what it looks like. Yeah, it's pretty person. gorgeous. Yeah. So, so basically, it's actually really beautiful. It's uh, a young man... Uh, taking off uh, a lion suit mm-hmm. and, and the lion, like a kind of um, onesie, I guess, a lion onesie. And um, and the head of the lion is sitting next to him and he's kind of like looking up heroically. And um, and it's just uh, a sort of, mem- not a memorial, but just like a, a reminder of, of the LGBT community mm. and in particular a mayor, the, the first openly gay mayor. In Australia, I believe. Tony Bifka. Tony Bifka? Yeah, from Hudson's Bay. Right? Oh, Paris. Yes, there yeah. you go. Yeah, thanks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I've even forgotten the name of the artist, which is fantastic. Um, but, but that's um, a good sign because right. the work is so striking. Um, thank mm-hmm. You don't need to know yes, the name. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And so it's, it's kind of Fitzroy's uh, contribution to the LGBTQI mm. Uh, plus debate and um, you know visibility and that sort of stuff. And I was just wandering around after the after the uh, mural was painted. I was wandering around Fitzroy trying to find, you know, stuff to to cover the interviews mm. with. And that was like, oh my God, perfect. Mm-hmm. So yeah.
0: I'm hoping this question's all right. I wanted to talk a little bit about the music. Oh the music, <laughs> so yes. Simona and And Zaya. And Zaya, yeah.
4: Simona's been on the show. Yeah.
6: Uh, yes,
0: of course. Yeah. So, yeah.
6: So Simona is actually gaining a lot of visibility as a trans performer. And she has this kind of um new wave dark synth kind of vibe. Uh and Zaya is actually a friend from, from Sydney. And uh and she I'm Hoping that I got her pronoun right, um, uh, did this amazing kind of acapella, very haunting um, um, song that I put it the, on the credits, mm. um, yeah, and and there was you know a whole bunch of people. Who, trans people who were like, Yes, I'd love to contribute music to the to the film mm. and I was like, Well, I've only got five minutes to work with in this one but when I make the bigger film I'm definitely gonna be getting a lot more trans Yeah, that, that yeah right, that, you got the music yeah. sorted. That yeah.
0: archapella piece at the end that was yeah. really good. Yeah, yeah. That sort of like turned my head to yeah. look back at yeah. Who is that? yeah. And clearly,
4: there's the material there for a, for a longer documentary.
6: Definitely. Yeah. Totally.
0: Mm. Now, before you leave us, I have to ask you a little bit about your background as so a strict Egyptian Coptic Orthodox background. Yeah. Yeah. So, so here we go. <laughs> so
6: so Coptic Orthodox uh, is basically the the Christian uh, religion in Egypt, and Coptic is just the Greek word for Egyptian, and and mm. so Coptic Orthodox comes from Greek Orthodox and all the other Orthodox religions. And there's a big Greek community in Alexandria in, Greek, in, Ye- uh, in Egypt. Yes, yes. Huge yes, community. Yes. And yeah, Egypt has a long relationship with Greece as well, and so uh, my parents are both Egyptian Coptic Orthodox, and I kind of uh, grew up with that as the background, so um, I guess for me... Uh, truth and belief has always been a thing for me, and I, I've kind of worked that into all my projects, I guess. Mm. Yeah,
0: yeah, we said, yeah, it, and it it's works
6: inf- for you because I mean, they, they dug deep. Your guests on not done yet. <laughs> yeah.
4: They really like it was so spontaneously put together, but yeah. it was, it was, it flowed beautifully, and they they touched on some issues that don't get much of a Guernsey, yeah. in yeah, discussion, exactly. certainly not on the mainstream media. So it's awesome that you've come in and shared that with us. Pleasure. Mm. We're in chain with Phil Solomon, uh, whose documentary, Not Done Yet, Uh, can be checked out if you go to
6: Facebook. Yes, Facebook, Vimeo, and Vimeo as well. Vimeo. Yes. Uh, Thanks, Phil. Thank you.
0: (laughs) You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.